Hey listeners, Harry here with another episode of Air Power and International Security. Today we have Dr. Patricia Shamai on the show talking to us about why certain weapons have been banned and why a stigma has been attached to chemical, biological and nuclear weapons. This is a super interesting discussion about how deterrence has emerged, not just through mutually assured destruction, but also through diplomatic norms and regulations that have seen the use and proliferation of these weapons become a taboo among the international community. Yet there is an undoubted challenge, a growing challenge, less so with nuclear, but certainly with chemical and biological weapons, as to how well this form of deterrence will continue to work against non-state actors outside of the traditional international community. And it's not beyond the realms of possibility that these types of weapons come into the hands of such groups. It's also fascinating to hear Patricia's thoughts on how far this stigma applies to other types of weaponry, particularly cyber weapons, and whether it will constrain their role in causing huge amounts of devastation in the future. So, if you're into mass destruction and whatnot, this is the show for you. Patricia teaches down at the University of Portsmouth, and I'm delighted she agreed to come on the show. So with no further ado then, here is Claire talking to Dr Shamai about WMDs and deterrence. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, we're looking forward to talking a little bit more about your work and your thoughts on deterrence. Um, and we'll get into some details of that. But I thought we'd start, as usual, um, with the sort of introductory question. So I was wondering whether you could tell us a bit more about what counts as a weapon of mass destruction. I mean, surely there are other weapons out there that can cause lots of damage and casualties. So why is this a special class of weaponry? The term weapons of mass destruction was devised after the Second World War. And it was essentially devised as a way to try to limit the spread and the destructiveness of warfare. So it, it emerged as a consequence of the uh, recognition of the devastation of the Second World War. And in particular, uh, the recognition of the growing tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States, so the East and the West. Um, and this recognition that technology was, in, was increasing, which was leading to the, uh, the increasing destructiveness of war. So there was a real growing fear that should there be another war, the consequences of it would be totally devastating. And this is where they started to debate this term of destruction. And it emerged diplomatically as a way of trying to make a distinction between a debate to ban all weapons, anything that causes harm, or to actually identify that some weapons are strategically distinct. And then in those discussions about the strategic distinction, you know, one weapon can cause more harm than another, then you started to also have these moral debates about how weapons kill and why they kill the way that they do. And in 1948, within the newly established United Nations, there emerged the definition weapons of mass destruction. And that, I'll, I'll read out specifically what that says, because that helps to understand why we have this separate category of warfare. So the UN Commission for Conventional Armaments, which was the commission that discussed this, um, identified weapons of mass destruction as atomic explosive weapons, radioactive material weapons, lethal chemical and biological weapons. And this is the bit that's most important. Any weapons developed in the future which have characteristics comparable in effect 
to those of the atomic bomb or other weapons mentioned above. So this is where they're identifying that there's a particular type of weapon that causes mass destruction. And their focus was on the strategic quality of the weapons. But when you look at that definition, chemical and biological weapons on the surface are very, very different to nuclear weapons. So a chemical weapon can be targeted on one individual rather than on an entire population. Whereas a nuclear weapon, if you were to use it, you'd know that, that you'd used it. You know, it would be, it would be um, massive. So when they're looking about at the term destruction and mass destruction, they were defining those three weapons because they identified that strategically each had the ability to kill in a really unique way and in a totally devastating manner. So through the spread of disease, through the um, poison, essentially, or through this, this mass devastating explosive effect. So the actual quality of the weapons, how they killed was important. But then second to that was the moral argument, the, the fact that these weapons were unseen and that they uh, attacked the body or the targets in a truly distinct way. So what you see is you see a technical sort of military type um, definition, but underlying that is this recognition of the um, distinct image and quality, the way that they kill, how they kill. Other weapons don't have that silent, deadly effect, and it's the potential to cause this, this mass destruction that is so important. That briefly reminds me of the discussion about um, the police use of tear gas, because in theory, that would be counted as a chemical weapon in warfare, but within a state, slightly different rules apply. So I guess it really does show that outside of that core of those sort of three kinds of weapons, once you get uh, to the edges of that, boundaries get a little bit fuzzier, which maybe links quite nicely to the next question. So in the law of armed conflict, with its rules of you know proportionality, distinction, um, and so on, that still restricts the use of certain weapons, right? So when and why did these weapons become special? What's different about them? You talked about that moral component. Is there something special about these this class of weapons? Yes, there is. And, and it's emerged progressively through time. So it's, it's where we hear the term taboo. And for my own research, I've defined it as a stigma. Um, but it's emerged through debates and understandings about these issues of proportionality and the laws of war. So you start to see this debate about how much force is too much force. What kind of weapon should we should we limit? It really emerged in the industrial, really, in the industrial era and in the turn of the century, where you're starting to see the development of um, bigger, more forceful forms of technology. The feeling was that if you limited the weapons, then you would li limit the devastating effects of warfare. So you started to get early debates, um, for example, about um, the type of bullets that were used. So the argument was, well, okay, if, if we use a roundhead bullet, that's okay. But once we start to use a flattening bullet, when that hits the target, it affects the target in a particular way, and that's disproportionate use of force. So we should limit these new developments in warfare. Uh, and if we were to do that, then we would have peace. Um, and this is where you started to, to get debates about outlawing particular types of warfare. But these discussions, they didn't suddenly appear at the turn of the century, but 
really they've been throughout time. Um, every time um, you've had a conflict, you've then had efforts to try to address and prevent the escalation of conflict. And you've had moral debates about um, practices in war. And these are the, the same debates that have led to the, um, the legal prohibitions that we have today. You always had uh, a recognition that there were certain practices that were seen as being over and above others in terms of their destructiveness, and, and those should be seen as prohibited. Um, and in particular, you had um, discussions about the use of gas and the use of poison. Uh, and, you know, back even in the, the days of the Crusaders, there were arguments about throwing diseased bodies over the crusader walls and and you know should that be seen as a practice that shouldn't shouldn't be addressed and you know does poison in warfare and disease in warfare stand out as being distinctly terrifying and provide a strategic advantage and also um, a strategic prohibition so there's been a recognition throughout time that there are certain practices and certain behaviors that are sort of seen as abhorrent uh, and, and distinct from others. And after the um, First World War, these concerns about the spread of technology and the increasing destructiveness of warfare started to really be seen as, as a reality when they recognized the um, changing nature of warfare and the devastation that the First World War caused. Um, and that's when you really start to see um, a growing norm appear around um, a particular, this particular understanding of mass destruction and these debates about mass destruction. And it starts by the use of chemical weapons. And it was really the recognition that you had the ability to target a mass population. Um, you didn't necessarily need to pit forces against each other in order to see an escalation um, of warfare. And, there were early efforts with that, with the Zeppelin and and, and um, movements to use terror as a tool of war. But with chemical weapons, they started to see that the effects that they could have on troops on the battlefield. But secondly, when um, there started to be scientific research into defending against these weapons, they saw that you more or less could not totally defend against a chemical attack. So on the battlefield, you could use protective measures such as gas masks. Um, but if chemical weapons were to be used upon a non-combatant, upon a civilian population, it's very difficult to protect all aspects of that population. So you could provide the population with gas masks, but you can't protect the vegetation and the livestock, and you can't clean the area effectively, 100% effectively, after an attack. So you're starting to see a recognition that there were some weapons that when they're used, you can't go back. You know, it, it, you're not just looking at the effect of the immediate use of those weapons, you're looking at the long-term effect of those weapons. So you've got this mixture of the strategic quality as well as the moral quality, the nature of killings, and then the long-term effects of their use. And um, this is where chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons start to become singled out as different and where the norms, the, the attitudes towards these weapons and that response is the stigma. That's where there's a, a reaction that, right, we've got certain weapons that cause this horrible harm. And how, how do those weapons stand out? And the stigma is where there starts to be this discussion that those weapons shouldn't be used. And that anyone that were to use those weapons 
stands out as distinct amongst the international community. And this is where you start to get efforts to try to um, create international laws to ban these specific weapons. That's really interesting. I remember reading something about sort of early days of these debates that suggested that ideas of chivalry and, you know, good, clean fighting had an effect or was thought to have an effect on ideas of, well, we don't want to use chemical weapons because that's not very chivalrous. It's not very clean fighting. I don't know how much, you know, ideas of culture have affected that over time. But I think that point of, you know, that it's not just a technical question, it's also a normative question is really interesting. And I think it's important as well that nothing ever happens in an isolated manner. So you have to put it in the context of what's going on at the time. And strategically, militarily, warfare started to move away from one-on-one combat and this idea of of pitting two forces against each other within a a sort of enclosed environment to looking at large-scale warfare. Suddenly, you know, the First World War highlighted it and most definitely the Second World War, that warfare now involved everyone a wide mass so so it moved from the first world war to involving um a wide mass of troops but you also start to see the possibility that the civilian population will be targeted and today Mm. when we're looking at war we're seeing that the civilians there's no distinction between civilian metropolitan areas and um other fields of warfare It's, it's all encompassing that change that mass developments in technology um, and the potential for technology, and also this this escalation of warfare that it no longer involved um, uh, troops on the battlefield, which could be identified as specific targets in a specific environment. That's what really propels this um, moral debate and this mm. distinction, this recognition of um, the devastating potential of um, particular weapons in war. Yeah, so this idea of total warfare and the sort of industrialization of warfare, and you're seeing that incremental change in these ideas. It's really interesting. Who's responsible for stopping this or managing it? You know, what does deterrence mean in this context? You know, what are the, I guess, necessary ingredients to deter people from using weapons of mass destruction? Is it just states or is it just NATO and the UN? What kinds of mechanisms or considerations are at play in deterring WMD? I think there's two two distinctions to make. So when you're looking at deterrence, you're looking specifically at efforts to prevent the use of these weapons. Traditionally, you've always had this notion of mutually assured destruction. So you're will deter your opponent from attacking you by letting them know that the consequences of doing so would outweigh any benefits that they might achieve. Uh, And traditionally, that has been, if you blast me with a nuclear weapon, I'll blast you back harder, um, and therefore you won't be able to exist. So so crudely, it's this um, literally mutually assured destruction. We will both be destroyed, and therefore we will not uh, participate in that particular action. Now, chemical and biological weapons are, um, as I've mentioned before, the nature of their use and the potential of their use means that you don't necessarily have that mass population destruction. Um, You can target them upon an individual. But we've seen that chemical and biological, the use of those weapons has almost been deterred tactically and strategically by nuclear weapons. So 
what you see, what you have had is you, you've got deterrence, which is focused on the actual decision making towards a particular conflict. So the, the strategic and the tactical planning. And then you've got wider diplomatic approaches to these weapons. And this is where you start to have arms control and the value of arms control, because arms control is the diplomatic approach to looking at the long term threat of each of those three types of weapons of mass destruction. And that's been the broader tool that's been used to try to deter the development of the weapons as opposed to just their use. So it's been the longer term planning, the longer term thinking. Um, and by developing the definition, the whole purpose of the definition was to try to make progress to try to form an agreement that would prevent the escalation of these weapons. Um, so arms control is really the key. That's the, the long-term key. And, and when we look at nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, we see that there are arms control agreements for all three. So nuclear weapons are controlled, they're not banned, but they're controlled under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And um, chemical weapons and biological weapons are actually banned. They're internationally prohibited. And what's distinct about them is their use, possession and development is prohibited. So it's they are probably the most complete documents, the, the most complete prohibitions, particularly um, chemical weapons, that you could have um, in terms of international law and in terms of an international commitment to prevent the use of these weapons. So if you're thinking about deterrence and if you're thinking about what stops their use, for chemical and biological weapons, it's states' agreement to ban those weapons, to sign those treaties. And both of those treaties have what we would call near universal compliance. So it basically means almost all the states in the world have signed the treaty that says that they will ban the development, use and um sharing of, of information in relation to chemical and biological weapons. And those treaties have been formed because of a recognition, as I say, of the devastating potential of those weapons, but also to some effect because of the, the power of nuclear weapons and, and that broader deterrent effect in that there's a recognition that if chemical and biological weapons were to be used, there's a possibility that there could be a counterattack with a nuclear weapon. And that historically has helped to form this impression that those weapons should be banned. It's more complex than that because um, there are more challenges associated with chemical and biological weapons. Um, any state that has a pharmaceutical industry has the potential to develop chemical and biological weapons. Whereas with nuclear weapons, it's far more complex to, to do that. And it's far more costly. We forget the massive cost um, of it. So this is why you have this distinction between the arms control agreements that are in place for them. And for nuclear weapons, in order to form an agreement, the international community almost had to form a compromise where they had to say, well, we recognize that some states have these weapons, but we will put sort of a cap, we will control the proliferation. And, and that's why there's sort of a control on them rather than an outright ban. And this is very much, I'm providing very much a simplified, you could spend hours reading about chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons, um, arms control treaties, and they are fascinating. But they are the prohibitions, they have established the sort of, um, if we would say the diplomatic deterrence, 
um, towards these weapons that we see today. So um, that is that is the broad um, distinction between why they're not used. Once states have signed those agreements, then diplomatically they're bound by those agreements. So if we look at Russia um, and concerns that Russia may have used chemical weapons or have um, supplied chemical weapons to other actors, officially, Russia has signed the Chemical Weapons Convention and therefore it's bound by international law and it has agreed that it will not use chemical weapons um, and that it will not um, develop or stockpile or share that information. And so states' compliance with these treaties is really, really important because it then establishes their diplomatic um, record and it sort of acts as a form of deterrence because if they were to break officially break those agreements, then they are making a very blatant statement and there's a possibility that there can be a response. So it could be diplomatic or economic responses through sanctions and things like that, I guess. So, yeah, they open themselves up to potential issues like that. Even military force. You know, if you, were, if you look at the case of uh, Ukraine and the concerns in Ukraine, there's a, a it's it's very unlikely but again when we're looking at sort of the the game of deterrence and this perception it's all about perception this perception of um response there's there's a possibility that if chemical if the chemical weapons convention were to be overtly broken uh, then the international community or individual actors could potentially respond with force so it, it would all have to go through the United Nations, but there could be a decision through the United Nations at its maximum, maximum level to use military force. And so that acts very much as a, as a tool to deter their escalation and their use. I guess it might be quite helpful for us to think through some of these issues with a, a, a sort of an example from recent history of both taboo, but also of the international response. I'm thinking when um, President Assad of Syria reportedly used chemical weapons several times against civilians in Syria since 2014, it caused a great deal of international outcry. But I was wondering whether you could tell us a little bit more about your thoughts about why the taboo against their use, but also the sort of international uh, regime for monitoring their use and controlling their use, why that didn't stop him using the weapons and why perhaps the UN wasn't able to intervene to stop the attacks? So the case of Syria is a, is a really good case study to look at and it demonstrates for us the challenges that we face today. So specifically, you know, we, we've talked about historically the concerns about these weapons. But today we're living in a world where we face threats now from states and non-state actors. and. We also have a time where I always say to my students, it's globalization. But globalization is this increased reliance on information technology. And that then means that there's a greater interconnectedness between us all in the, in the way that we live. And you no longer have conflict focused just on states um, and just on military. Again, it's, we've seen this escalation from the First World War where we were looking at uh, uh, two military armies pitted against each other on the battlefield, to the Second World War, where we were looking at, at civilians being targeted, the blitz bombings um, uh, and this wide scale warfare, to today, where we're seeing um, 
non-state actors, terrorist organizations targeting civilians. We've had that 9-11 was a, a very good example of that. So almost this, they would call it hybrid warfare or sub-threshold warfare. This scenario where you've got multiple targets in multiple domains, multiple scenarios. So we've got threats of um, uh, mass cyber attacks, or we've got um, concerns about multiple, you know, t- a terror attack, and then at the same time, the launch of uh, military forces. And Ukraine is a really good example. The, the Crimea is a really good example of that sort of modern warfare. Um, and Ukraine and the conflict today is a really good example of the way that you've got this mix of civilians and uh, military forces. Um, so we're seeing the changing nature of warfare. And then with that, when we think about threats about the use of chemical, biological or nuclear weapons, nuclear, it's a little harder to do because these are uh, very sophisticated weapons. It would be very difficult to steal a nuclear weapon and use a nuclear weapon. But there is a greater enhanced possibility of the acquisition of nuclear materials. Um, And with chemical and biological weapons, there's a possibility that other actors may acquire those weapons and use those weapons. So you're seeing a movement away from a focus and an assumption that just states will use those weapons to other actors. And when we look at the case study of um, Syria, there's a huge amount of ambiguity associated with how chemical weapons could have been used and the context of use. So the context of use is key. So within Syria, there's a growing evidence and and over time we're finding more and more evidence um, to indicate that the Assad regime used chemical weapons. The United Nations has investigated this, the OPCW has been involved. This is the organization that that monitors compliance with the chemical weapons um, convention. Um, They've monitored materials and they've, they've said that there's a very compelling case, very, very compelling case that the Assad regime used those weapons. But there is a very slim possibility that other actors also use those weapons. Um, And because of the nature of conflict, it's very difficult in a conflict scenario to say, hold on a minute, you definitely did and you didn't. Um, And it's very difficult to test in a conflict environment. So within Syria, you had a conflict which involved the state and it involved Uh, what we would call an intrastate conflict. It involved actors within the state. Um, So it wasn't two opposing states fighting each other, which has been conventionally the form of conflict. It was an internal and intrastate conflict. And so therefore, when we're looking at the use of chemical weapons, we're moving away from the established laws and assumptions. The established laws and assumptions were that one state would use chemical weapons upon another state. So the focus was on states, not on the use of chemical weapons within a state itself. And then the actors who could have used those weapons within the state. So within Syria, you've got this ambiguity of, did the Assad regime use chemical weapons, number one? Number two, did other actors use chemical weapons? And then who has responsibility? And so there was compelling evidence that the Assad regime used chemical weapons, but the challenge was proving it. And then secondly, acting upon it. And many, many states didn't want to act upon it because of this ambiguity of, well, who who are we defending and who is using those weapons? So 
it identifies for us the future challenges of the, the context of using chemical weapons. Um, another aspect to that that should be noted is that, again, there is an assumption that Russia supported the Assad regime in supplying chemical weapons. Again, Russia has signed the Chemical Weapons Convention, so Russia would argue that they didn't because those weapons are prohibited. But in today's world, with the ease of spread of information and the ease of communication, then we see an added factor. Similarly, there were concerns, well, who supplied chemical weapons to the, the different parties that were involved in fighting the Assad regime? And again, there's a huge amount of ambiguity associated with that and a number of challenges with preventing that. So you see from Syria an increased need to support and strengthen the arms control agreements that are already in place because they are the only tool of leverage that we have to say these weapons need to be um, prohibited and we need to stop the spread of these weapons of mass destruction. But I think in Syria, it highlights for us the real importance of maintaining that taboo and that stigma. And by not acting, and there were many reasons not to act, but by not acting, there is a danger that you can normalize the use of these weapons. And when we're looking at Ukraine and we're looking at discussions about, you know, that there's actually really discussed utilizing deterrent forces. The Russia said, you know, it's not off the table. Um, although, and they never used the words nuclear weapons, but they, um, they said that they would utilize their deterrent forces, which others interpreted as nuclear weapons. We're suddenly seeing, well, oh my goodness, once we start talking about this, are we actually normalizing these weapons? Um, and this is where it's so very, very important to maintain the taboo and to maintain the international agreements that we have in place. So I veered slightly away from your question, but the in today's world, we are facing a much broader context of use and much greater challenges about how we maintain the norms associated with these weapons. And I think that by not responding to allegations of the use of those weapons, and, and there are very valid reasons not to, you do risk the possibility of normalizing chemical weapons and then weakening um, that definition of weapons of mass destruction, which has much wider connotations for um, the potential instability that could be associated with efforts to, to address nuclear and biological weapons. Do you think that the uh, international response to Syria has involved some reflection or some concrete measures to try and strengthen those uh, observation and control mechanisms? Do you think that even if they didn't intervene, it has forced that kind of reflection and some concrete responses, or is it still a little bit abstract? It's led to international efforts to strengthen the, the Chemical Weapons Convention. And uh, at the time, I remember Samantha Power, who was the US ambassador to the UN, I remember her saying um, that um, it had strengthened the Chemical Weapons Convention and it had strengthened the norm against chemical weapons. But I think that there has to be an important distinction between the diplomatic strengthening, the rhetoric, and the reality. I think that we need to look at, at who the actors are in the world now and, and what the threats are that we face. And we see that Russia has felt emboldened enough to take international action um, to, to use military force against Ukraine. And I wonder whether that would have been the case had there been a stronger international response in Syria. Only time will tell. Um, but I think that by 
normalizing these weapons, even if it's down to um, the rhetoric that's used, the actions that are taken, you will have a knock-on effect. Every single thing that we do is really vital, is really important. And um, every action that's taken, every word that's said by the US president, by uh, the UK prime minister, it has an impact. And to maintain the norms, you need to um, maintain the same argument all the way through. I think mm. in today's world, we're seeing that in order to address conflicts, it requires a military action, a physical action, but the diplomatic actions are almost of equal importance and that we need to maintain the two together. So um, I would say that um, it's vitally important that we don't normalize these weapons and it's vitally important that we don't normalize nuclear weapons. There are discussions mm. about, would we respond if tactical nuclear weapons were used? Well, those weapons, a nuclear weapon is way bigger than any other. The effects are, are devastating. There needs to always be this perception that if those weapons were to be used or acted on or, or infringed, any of the norms infringed, that there will be a unified response. And the mm. key is that that unified response um, by the international community. Yeah, we've got to be prepared to back up the, the strong words with actions. And I think that's going to be an ongoing challenge for all the reasons you've highlighted, perhaps. Talking about the nature of conflict today and the kind of globalised and interconnected world we face, that maybe leads us to the question about uh, cyber attacks. We often hear about the potential for catastrophic damage and indiscriminate civilian casualties from cyber attacks to critical infrastructures like uh, power plants or gas and chemical industries or energy suppliers, that sort of thing. Do you think it's possible or likely that a taboo will ever develop around cyber capabilities that target such civilian resources beyond the laws of armed conflict? Or do you think that these capabilities don't reach the same kind of thresholds that have developed around nuclear weapons and chemical weapons? The challenge you have with um, the use of um, cyber uh, or cyber threats, these are diffuse threats. It's very difficult to identify them, where they've come from, to attribute responsibility to a particular actor for them. And um, there's a wide scale of distinction between what you would class as an attack. So a small scale attack or like you say, a large scale infrastructure. We're focusing on the large scale infrastructure. Um, there are efforts, localized efforts, domestic efforts to try to um, prevent those threats. And, and a lot of those efforts are through what we would call deterrence by denial. So it's denying the, the capability in the first place, developing firewalls, developing defense systems um, that block those attacks. Um, in terms of thinking about a wider norm and a norm against chemical weapons, um, I would argue that sadly, it will take a large scale incident to promote or prompt any kind of action, I think. There have been discussions and, and research, the US has researched, um, and the UK, um, quite widely, the dangers from cyber weapons uh, and the potential of those weapons. And some have argued that in time, they could become another weapon of mass destruction. The potential devastation caused by those weapons could, could outweigh. Again, the key is the potential and the perception. Um, and I think when you're looking at the threat on, the, on large scale infrastructure systems, I think it will only take some kind of enormous event 
to take any kind of international action. And the main reason for that is that the cyber domain is intrinsic to everything that we do within our society and the way that we live. And if you were to try to form any kind of international agreement, you would need to verify that agreement and enforce that agreement. Mm. And that would then mean that you would need to have some way of monitoring whether primarily states were compliant with that. Um, and that's that's almost impossible because you would be infringing the affairs, the day-to-day -day affairs within individual um, states. If you were then to widen it to non-state actors, and, and these are the actors that are have the increasing potential to use cyber weapons, um, then it's near impossible. Um, and so I think that it will probably be a case of, of sort of an incremental case in, in the sense that continuous awareness and continuous denial can try to sort of mitigate that, that threat. So mm. I think it'd be very difficult um, unless something terrible happened. And even then it would be very challenging to enforce any kind of um, international prohibition or um, agreement. Because these aren't capabilities that you can stockpile or count or verify in quite the same way, right? They're much more sort of built into intelligence systems and intelligence capabilities and military systems. And yeah, so that kind of difficulty of verification, I think, is an added difficulty in this domain. I think you're absolutely right. Definitely. And that context, I mean, who attribution, who is using those weapons? Yeah, someone hired by a state, but very unofficially. And yeah, it gets very mucky very quickly, doesn't it? It does. I mean, that was a really fascinating introduction and discussion of some of these issues. So thank you very much for joining us today. Excellent. Pleasure. Thank you. I think you'll agree that there was some really thought-provoking stuff in today's episode. So thank you to Patricia for coming on the show and to Claire for asking some really great questions. I found it interesting that the changing character of warfare really does change the acceptability of certain types of weapons and therefore how states prosecute conflict. It's quite alarming really to realise that the mechanisms that keep us all safe from WMDs are slowly being eroded and degraded over time. Anyway, next up we have a much lighter episode for you, all about the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people through the use of incredibly small but deadly weapons all the same. We have Professor Alan Alpor on the show talking to us about American strategic bombing, both the theory and the practice that were developed between 1930 and 1945. So do look out for that one. That's it from me. See you next time.